Welcome to Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you to serve God and your neighbor. If you want to learn more about our ministry, head over to mapc.com. If you're looking for a community where you can deepen your faith, we invite you to join us every Sunday at 1030 online or in person. So our preaching text comes from John's Gospel, chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. Listen now for the word of the Lord. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, One of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came, so the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of God. My favorite theologian, Karl Barth, was raised in a time when the ancient mysteries of the world were being re-evaluated. The miracles in the Bible were chief among the myths that modern thinkers sought to debunk. The preachers he grew up listening to taught sermons that sounded more like apologies. They read verses of scripture and then began to quickly insert their own qualifiers, revisions, footnotes. It went something like this. See, the miracle, the the feeding of the 5,000 was a miracle of generosity in which strangers shared the food they kept hidden from others. The fantastic visions in which Paul is called up to heaven are inspiring, but ultimately caused by medicine with hallucinogenic properties. And the resurrection of Jesus was treated no differently. Jesus may have risen in spirit, but probably not in body. Well, Karl Barth saw things differently. 
In his many works of theology, he offered an entirely new perspective by which the miraculous stories of the Bible could be understood. Instead of beginning with the human senses as a ground for truth and understanding, Bart began with the word of God. Bart asked, what if we take Jesus at his word? What if the stories in the Bible were the ground for understanding and truth? How might that change our understanding of faith? And so, today's scripture reading presents a challenge. Do we read about the resurrection of Jesus and take the Bible's word for it? Do we? Do we, like Bart, believe that the truth begins with divine revelation? Do we believe that the ground for truth is God's word and everything else must conform to it? Or do, I, do we identify with Thomas? Are we incredulous? Are we measuring divine revelation by the empirical data our senses produce? Must we come face to face with the risen Christ in order to believe? Most people find themselves closer to Thomas's position, and that's okay. Jesus understands this and offers himself wounds and all to you. But today I'd like to explore Bart's position because I think it can helpfully remind us of the purpose of faith. If this is a story about faith, it's in faith's ability to change us so that we might change our world and not the other way around. We're given a scene in which Jesus' disciples are holed up in a house, afraid that the religious authorities will seek them out and punish them in the same way they punished Jesus. Things are tense as they discern what comes next. Where is God calling them in the wake of Jesus' death? Have they lost their faith? They know the tomb is empty, but that's all they know. Suddenly, Jesus appears and presents his body. His first words are, peace be with you. A statement that stands in stark contrast to the violence which his wounds bear witness. We're told that the disciples rejoice. Their Savior lives, albeit in a way that doesn't make sense. Jesus' body seems to defy death. His body continues to operate despite the wounds he endured. The wounds still exist. They've not healed or ceased to exist, but now they do not carry the price of pain and death. The wounds have been stripped of their power. They're no longer symbols of death. Instead, they testify to the power of God to overcome death. They have undergone a definitive change in the shadow of the resurrection. The same change happens to the disciples who are present during Jesus' visit. We're told that Jesus repeats himself, Peace be with you, and adds, As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. These disciples, like Jesus' wounds, formerly attested to his defeat. Their fear and inaction bore witness to the paralyzing power of death. But now, Jesus has changed all of that. Jesus has given them a new understanding of their experience, and with this new understanding has fundamentally changed them. 
Whereas formerly, the disciples locked themselves away from the world, Jesus now sends them out into the world. Where before the disciples struggled with Jesus' absence, they are now filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit. Where before sin, by definition, led to certain death, they can now overcome sin through God's forgiveness. The truth of the resurrection has not yet changed the world, but it has changed them. And by this I mean that deaths like Jesus would continue to play a role in the disciples' ministry only now. They knew that death was not the end. After Jesus ascends into heaven, the disciples would no longer enjoy his bodily presence. Only now, the Holy Spirit dwells within them at all times. The world has not changed, but Jesus' disciples are changing the world. Let's return to Thomas. Poor Thomas must have been running errands while Jesus appeared to the disciples, because when he hears his friends talking about the experience, he refuses to believe. And quite rightly, he states that he will not believe unless he sees the mark of the nails and puts his hand into Jesus' side. We ought not to judge Thomas for painting this gruesome picture. Here we meet a man deep in pain. His friend and teacher has experienced a horrific death, and now he feels as though his close friends are playing a cruel joke. He reacts the way any sane person would. I can imagine him saying, we were all there. We saw our friend crucified and die. And now you expect me to believe he appeared to you? No. I know how the world works. When you die, you die. And Thomas is right, so far as he knows. What Thomas does not know is that his friends, the other disciples, have been changed. They know the good news that Thomas does not know. Jesus has risen. The tension between Thomas and the rest of the disciples prefigures the tension between the world and the church into today. Because the world still hasn't changed. When you die, you die. The rules remain the same. And that's exactly why the truth of the resurrection is no easier to accept today than it was on the first Easter. The world has not changed, but Jesus' followers have been changed. When Bart imagined a new understanding of Scripture that accepted Jesus at his word, he didn't throw out the scientific worldview. He didn't cease believing in the laws of physics and instead start believing in magic. No. Bart turned to passages like this one and kept reading. He reached the end of verse 25 where Thomas says, I will not believe, and he kept going. And when he kept reading, this is what he found. Jesus appeared to Thomas and said, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Bart saw that the truth of Jesus' resurrection splits all of time and space in two. It tears a previously seamless garment in half. On the one side is the old way, and on the other side is the new way. 
On the one side, Jesus is a noble Jewish teacher who dies a wrongful death, and on the other side, he's the savior of the world. On the one side, humanity is enslaved to sin, and on the other side, sin is overcome. On the one side, when you die, you die, and on the other side, death is an impossibility. When Jesus takes Thomas's hands and guides it toward his wounds, he's not denying the laws that govern life and death, he's confirming them. Jesus is saying, this is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He looks Thomas in the eye and says, do not doubt, but believe. Believe that I was crucified and died. Believe that I carry the wounds of my death, but also believe that I have risen and I am changing the world. When time and space are split by the resurrection of Jesus, we can understand how Thomas can change from, I will not believe, to my Lord and my God. We can understand how our faith is not at odds with the laws of nature, but rather God upholds and uses these laws of nature to usher in a new world, a world where everlasting death is impossible. It is the very laws of nature and reason that Jesus used to make his lordship known. The wounds that killed him are the proof of his power over death. So, how is Jesus showing us this same truth today? Where can we find the wounds of Christ proclaiming his victory today? I think one way we can understand this is to look at the church. When John was writing his gospel, the last eyewitnesses to Jesus' ministry were dying off. And this introduced a crisis of faith within the fledgling church. For generations, those who wanted proof of Jesus' resurrection need only ask someone who was there to witness it. But now, those disciples weren't around. Where could they go to find the wounds of Jesus testifying to his resurrection? In other words, where could they go to find the type of proof that would elicit faith from non-believers? Because that is really the type of faith Jesus is after. He wants faith not just in his resurrection, but in his entire ministry. What good is it to believe that a single man rose from the dead? Jesus wants us to have faith in our own eventual resurrection, the type of faith that changes us into one that transcends the fear of our mortality. It calls us beyond ourselves and empowers us to live for God. One answer might be the martyrs, those who suffered death for the cause of Christ. In the martyrs, John's community saw the inexplicable, normal, everyday people giving up their lives as an act of faith. And the assumption is that their lives were not, in fact, coming to an end. Rather, Christ's victory over death promised a new life on the other side. If we allow ourselves to be moved by this act of devotion, martyrdom may be the closest we can come to seeing Jesus' wounds ourselves. But what about the church today? Where might we find proof of Jesus' resurrection? Where might we experience the life of Jesus in such a way that elicits faith? In my office, I have a dirty metal helmet with the Chevron logo printed on it. And under the logo, you'll find a sticker with the name George Laughlin printed on it. 
The old helmet belonged to my grandfather, and he wore it as he worked in an oil refinery for Chevron. My grandfather died when I was a freshman in high school, so I didn't get to know him very well. And he was a man of few words, so my memories of him have little to do with the things he said to me. Instead, I remember most what he did for me. Every summer, my parents would drop my brother and I off at my grandparents' house for a few weeks. And there isn't a lot to do in New Iberia, Louisiana, but my grandfather always found ways to keep us entertained. He took us to skate parks, out to eat, to the movies. He jump-started my addiction to Krispy Kreme donuts, driving several miles each way to make sure he got the freshest donuts every Saturday morning. Beyond just entertaining my brother and I, my grandfather took care of us in all kinds of ways. He would give us a dollar for every book we read to make sure we were reading. As a devout Catholic, he modeled discipleship by praying the rosary every single day with my grandmother. He made sure my brother and I were good stewards of our resources by gifting us stock and teaching us how to invest. He brought us to volunteer events that benefited the needy. So if you were to ask me for proof of him, of all the things he said and did, I probably wouldn't show you his work helmet, although he wore it every day and it had his name printed across the top. It's perhaps the weakest evidence of his life. Instead, I would tell you about how he changed me and shaped me. I'd give you my mom's number so you could call her and learn more about him. I'd ask you to sit down with his friends who knew him and listen to stories of his life. Because although the physical nature of his existence is important, it's inextricably linked to his legacy. It, it's not where you'll find the truth of his life. It isn't what will illustrate the type of man he was and the effect he had on our world. And this is the heart of John's message. The legacy of Jesus was absolutely a physical reality, and yet it isn't the most compelling evidence of his ministry and resurrection. A photograph of Jesus standing next to Thomas, wounds and all, does not elicit the type of faith Jesus wants from us. This is not the proof that the church in John's day needed, and it isn't the proof we need today. If we, like Thomas, want proof, we need to speak to those whose lives have been transformed by the gospel. We need to learn from those who have spent their life following God's word. I cherish the wisdom given to me by longtime members of MAPC, those elders and deacons who have been around since Dr. Reed spoke from this pulpit, those who remember when the pews were overflowing, when baptisms were frequent, and when growth was taken for granted. I don't need to read the session minutes to believe that the church was transforming lives through the power of the gospel. I only need to sit with these elders and listen. The proof of Jesus' resurrection is sitting next to you today. The new life he offers us is as real as the person to your right or left. We are resurrection people, and one day we will be a resurrected people. But for now, the world has not changed, but we are being changed. The world has not changed, but by the power of Jesus in us, we are changing the world. Amen.